This is The Uncharted Life with Jacob Lyles. Welcome back to the show, everyone. I am happy that of all the things you could be doing, all the podcasts out there, all the YouTube videos, in this great big wide world that is 10,000 miles in diameter, in this solar system that has uh, 63 million miles between the Earth and the Sun, uh, in this galaxy that is 100,000 light years wide, there is so much to do, so much to see, and you are choosing to spend this time with me. I appreciate that. Welcome to my digital living room. And tonight I have a show for you that is a conversation, a podcast conversation with a friend of mine, Josh Witten. Now Josh and I go back a number of years. Uh, I, I met him shortly after I moved to the Bay Area and I've looked up to him for for a while. I, I view him as something of a spiritual older brother. Uh, uh, Josh has been very interested in the topics of finding peace and self-acceptance and he's spent a lot of years seriously pursuing that topic trying out different ways to find it and and I feel like he's walked along that path more than me and I've learned a lot both from his example and from his words over the years um, he's had a he's had a good impact on my life I, I appreciate Josh and Josh is also a tech CEO. He was CEO of a very successful tech company in the past, and he is currently CEO of a new one. And both those companies were on the theme of uh, helping to uh, improve the environment through entrepreneurship. Uh, his new company is called Make Soil. And the mission of that company is to help people learn about composting. So, um, if you're if you're interested, check it out. And uh, Josh will talk more in this podcast about his vision for that company and what led him to it, which is a fascinating story. Um, before we rolled record on this podcast, we we started with a little bit of a meditation, and we were kind of improvising. And we ended up doing the whole conversation in sort of a quasi-meditative state. So if we sound extra calm, and there might be a little bit longer pauses than normal in the beginning, then that's why. Uh, bear with me. It's, uh, it's a great podcast. I really, even if I do say so myself, uh, I really enjoyed it, and I hope you will too. So if you're interested about healing the environment and healing yourself, then this is the podcast for you. And I give you my conversation with Josh Witten. What kind of meditation is most fun for you? Nowadays, the kind of meditation that is most fun for me is when I feel like I'm connecting to a higher power or a larger, a larger sense of self or an ecosystem of reality feels more communal and connected than just just an empty no mind kind of state so I'm no longer just trying to get rid of a busy mind or something like that and busy mind is fairly uncommon for me now but yeah a kind of meditation where I feel myself connecting to the uh, creation at large as it were those mm -hmm. are very nice Kind of a sense of uh, communion with reality. Yeah. Then there's embodiment meditations where where I, I feel like I'm really, really showing up on earth in my body fully, which is, uh, I don't think our normal state, you know, we're so distracted and our our awareness is captured by so many things other than our own bodies and our own uh, sense of presence, you know, off on concerns or the news or issues in our lives or fearful thoughts about the future. So anytime we're really present and really in our bodies, 
That's very, that's very pleasurable. It's hard to beat that, really. There's so many pleasurable destinations in meditation where you just end up and you think, oh, wow, this is the place to be. And then a week later, you find a completely different place to be. It's just as satisfying. Is a calm mind necessary prerequisite to those other states? Uh, yeah, but there's many paths to a calm mind. Uh, so one is a kind of traditional noticing noticing all the, the chatter, and that sort of depowers the chatter slowly. And then you can go the other route, which is uh, getting so, so frustrated and so busy-minded and s that you just kind of have a, a moment of, oh, I'm done, like I'm done being this way. And then there's a, it's kind of like, you, end, it's kind of like, uh, you know, stack overflow instead of uh, <laughs> emptying the buffer. <laughs> I have, I did not know about that path. Yeah, and that one, that one, one way to facilitate that one is to, I, I, I uh, have this little mantra, which is uh, speak truth. And what that means is you could be in a weird state and then you could, it'll just come to me. Like, I won't know how to get out of that weird place. And then I'll just say, oh, speak truth. And then, and then, the, and then the, the task is to say any true thing, no matter how absurd, uncensored, any true thing. So it could be, I don't want to be here. I'm sick of my life. I don't want to be awake right now. I don't, I'm not looking forward to my day. You'll just find that there's all kinds of unspoken truths on the tip of your tongue. And that this kind of nameless malaise that, uh, that you might be under actually has a lot of content. We're just not used to, we're not practiced at unpacking what's causing it. So speak truth. That's a really fun one. Just start, just start saying everything that feels subjectively true to you. And you'll find with each utterance raises the amount of truth in your in your in your being, in your mind, in yourself, you're circulating that truth through your through yourself at large. And any increase in truth in in the self has a therapeutic effect. What's true to you now? In this very moment. Mm -hmm. Oh, what's true to me now is is I'm realizing that. Uh, we're recording and so we're past the point of what's this podcast going to be about. We're already, we've already begun determining somehow what this podcast is about. So that's interesting. I'm just noticing that this choice point that we've been building up to is already behind us now. And I'm, I'm letting go of predefined notions of what we were going to talk about. And I'm noticing a little bit of anxiety of making sure that there's like, I'd like to talk a little bit about the Make Soil project because we just launched this week, but that, these are just, this is also really nice too. Mm. Yeah. I, why don't we go there? Okay. Um, I, I'd like to hear about you know, what, what your work is, what brings you, what work you're doing in the world and what it means to you. Yeah, so in general, everything I do now either has an env environmental aspect to it, or as I like to say, helps end the destruction of the only living biosphere in the known universe. Earth is still the only, only living biosphere we, we've ever found. We're not taking very good care of it. So there's a lot of benefits to preserving, preserving the Earth as a living system including it gives us more time as humans to acquire knowledge and evolve. So extend, you know, the, the earth is like the womb that the human species is evolving in. So having this earth womb be as robust and healthy as possible. That's good. That's good for us. And, uh, and then elevating human consciousness, through a, through a variety of ways, uh, all my projects uh, address address those two things because the 
the level of human consciousness right now is, uh, I wouldn't call it unacceptable because, you know, at some point in your journey of consciousness, you sort of come to some weird sense of acceptance of everything, but you also realize that things have consequences. So we can accept the current level of consciousness that the human species is at collectively, but it has uh, consequences. Those consequences look like the scene outside of this studio where we're recording now, right? There's, there's a, a lot of mental illness, people lying strewn about the streets, garbage cans overflowing and rampant homelessness. So, uh, and always on the brink of war somewhere and uh, widespread depression and uh, coping mechanisms that are not good for us and the planet. And uh, so reality is uh, rather painful. A lot of people, a lot of people are in a lot of pain right now. And, and the elevation of human consciousness uh, is not only a way out of that pain, but you might even say that's what the pain is pointing us towards. Could you talk a little bit about what it means for there to be different levels of consciousness and what it means to elevate one's consciousness? Um, these are terms I've heard before, but it's not quite apparent to me how I would raise my consciousness or how I would tell that it was, was raised. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. I may say things like level of levels of consciousness, that there's a higher and a lower consciousness, but even myself personally, I don't subscribe to too many uh, like linear systems of consciousness. You can find them. There's many systems where they've mapped out consciousness, and they seem to they seem to follow these rungs on a ladder. And there might be some some truth to that. Uh, but to me, reality is so organic that that the higher and lower that I mean here could be could be also said as uh, more robust and less robust, more complex and less complex. And so you and I are made of a trillion cells. And when it comes to consciousness, we tend to focus on those brain cells and the neurons and the mind, uh, the brain that seems to power the mind. And our neurons could be arranged in a lot of different ways as far as their, their connectivity and their synapses and the synaptic patterns we're running. And some of those patterns when that are less, less beautiful and less complex, uh, tend to have lower order behavior. We might call it associated with them fight or flight. And then beyond that egoic, very self-serving, uh, and self-serving in a way where you don't see that other people are also yourself and reality as a whole is also yourself. It's a very limited sense of self. And, and then as that complexity rises, as the, as the billions of neurons and, and trillion cells that are you enter into uh, a more beautiful relationship with one another, an exchange of information freely between all the systems and subsystems and networks and subnets of yourself, increasingly beautiful behavior and experiences seem to arise. Things that we tend to call unconditional love and joy and peace, Christ consciousness, all Mir sorts miracles. of things. What's that? Miracles. Absolutely. Yes. So as as our complexity reconfigures and our, our awareness, uh, we gain new awareness as that complexity uh, rises and you become aware of more things and your ability to perceive reality more and more robustly increases. And as you do, reality seems to respond to your understanding of it. So reality becomes a lot more playful and participatory in your experience instead of instead of having an experience of a human who's just an island in a sea of chaos or chance i like to say that chance is what you get when the universe is indifferent to your activities 
So if it were a big computer, and I think you and I both have a tech background actually, uh, you could have a random number generator subroutine or function, you can call that function. But you could also not rely on the random number generator and, and call on and invoke uh, other more ordered functions. And you find this even in the writings of Henry David Thoreau. You know, he says, if you step out in this direction of your dreams and follow so on and so forth and toward, toward whatever, you'll find that you come, uh, new laws establish themselves around you. So it's not that people out there who are experiencing reality as uh, a chance ridden chaos aren't having that experience. It's just that it's not the only experience to have in this reality. It's, it's far more like the holodeck than we might realize. Mm. It seems like our experience could lead us to higher levels of consciousness then. Like if we could notice what what modes of being draw us to it and what modes of being lead us away, then that would be a way to plot a course. Yeah. Yeah, you might say that all of our experiences are always pointing us toward higher consciousness and all we have to do is get the meaning out of the experience, get the lesson out of it, get the, the essence of whatever it's trying to teach us. And in general, if we don't get the lesson, the experiences have to get louder and more painful. And if we do get the, the lesson, the experience reconfigures very quickly onto the next experience that's appropriate for us. I've heard you talk before about the topics of healing and enlightenment. Um, these are both interesting topics to me. Yeah. I have this fun idea about enlightenment that it's, it's, the it's the natural human states as we are completely integrated and in a state of total self-acceptance. And enlightenment can be an unsatisfying idea for people because it's like an end, an end point. And so in that case, just think of the enlightening not enlightenment. The enlightening is just your journey in this direction of upward trending consciousness. And one surefire path to enlightening is through what we might call healing. And by this, we mean not only physical healing, but emotional, psycho-spiritual healing. And another example of that would be the release of emotions like shame and fear and beliefs that are untrue. They're all sort of, they're all the same thing kind of at different levels of reality. So we can heal our, our emotions and our identity by letting go of shame. And so every, just about every living human is carrying a lot of uh, some amount of shame right now and generally quite a lot, which means that somewhere inside of their network of self, if we were to really, dig around in there, we would find there's some reason, there's some experience, there's some moment that left them believing, left us all believing that we were bad. Not just that we did something bad once or did something poorly or caused a painful experience to arise, but that we are bad. And we formed a lot of these beliefs when we were young, when we didn't have a lot of, uh, a lot of robustness of experience and we didn't we, weren't, we didn't have any, enough context for what was happening to us. And we came to this very simplistic belief about ourselves that we, we are bad for whatever it is, wetting the bed, taking the cookie, yada, yada. So carrying that around, that, 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 that sense of I am bad is so painful. It's the most painful existential thing because there's no real, there's nowhere to go from there. Um, guilt is also very painful, but that's more related to, I did something bad. And even that's not as painful as I am, I am bad. I am badness. So you can see here how releasing that shame and realizing that you are not bad, regardless of what you've done is 
healing. There's now, uh, there was self-hatred there. Self-hatred, I am bad, that's self-hatred. That's a system opposed to itself. So as that shame is released and self-acceptance comes in, the consciousness rises. The, the neural net of yourself is now at a higher state of complexity and communication. And people will have cathartic releases when this occurs, and they will feel glorious, they'll have this taste of self-acceptance, and, and it makes it easy to accept other people suddenly, and just life seems so beautiful, even despite the pain. People have these experiences when they, when they release shame. And I, I joke with people when they have these experiences, whether they tell me about them or whether I've helped guide them into those experiences, I'll pat them on the back and I'll say, you just have 800 more of those and you'll be enlightened. And I'm, I'm kind of not joking uh, because in our society today, getting any legitimate healing is very rare. Our current society and economy serves up coping mechanisms usually to help assuage and numb the pain, our existential pain, whether it's I am bad or life is meaningless or my past, you know, I did these things and I, I can never fix it or I didn't do something that I should have and like whatever it is. There's coping mechanisms being served up by society to help mitigate the negative feelings there as opposed to legitimate healing that helps you find the untruth. So the untruth in every, in every, uh, shame is that you can't possibly be bad just by existing. You have, you are, you exist as much as anyone else exists and you are not bad. You may have done a lot of bad things. Let's look at that. And then even in the guilt of having done bad things, you realize you were doing the best you could, no matter how, no matter how awful it was, no matter how looking back now, you see that you could have done better. In that very moment, you were doing the best you could. We were all doing the best. We, all, we are all doing the best we can at any given moment. doesn't mean we can't do better two seconds later when we see the consequences of those actions, but we're always doing the best we can. So you can see that even at the bottom of guilt and shame, there's these untruths. And how confident are you that you're good? That I'm good. Um, not all the way, because I have moments sometimes where somebody uh, is trying to pay me a compliment or something and I, I brush it off, you know. I think that happens to a lot of us. We don't sit there with, we don't sit there and, and let ourselves be seen even for our goodness because we're worried there'll be some badness that'll be seen as well. So I'm certain that it's not complete in me. And I don't think in terms of, of goodness a lot, but uh, I know that I'm not a, at a place of total self-acceptance yet. I think when you're at a place of total self-acceptance, you're radiating acceptance. People get within 50 feet of you and they start to feel more self-accepting. They start to weep. That's, that's a state of total self-acceptance and almost no living humans are there. We're all carrying some bit of unprocessed baggage from from the past or a huge, huge jumble of those experiences. Have you ever met someone with a very high degree of self-acceptance? Yes, absolutely. What was that like? It's kind of like I was describing. I just, just to get near the person, you start to, you start to feel warm. Your heart starts to open, your chest releases any tension there. And you just start to feel immensely okay with yourself, immensely okay with everyone else and immensely okay with whatever is happening in the moment. And uh, feels like their self-acceptance is contagious in some way. That's right, because uh, their total self-acceptance means other acceptance as well. So. so sometimes before we can even accept ourselves or on the way to accepting ourselves, another person helps accept us. First, we see, the, we see the acceptance that they have for us. And then that acts as a sort of benevolent authority in our life where we can say, well, maybe if, they, if they're accepting me, then maybe I can accept myself. It's not a rational process going on, but subconsciously and emotionally, that's what's going on. 
our, our religious story is helpful in that regard. Uh, like having this idea of someone like a Christ that loves you even if nobody else does. Can that be a bootstrap to self-acceptance or? You can if you believe it and, and, and actually come into contact with some force that does accept you. I believe that's, that's entirely possible. That acceptance can come from another human being. It can come from some nameless, imperceptible place while you're watching the sunrise some morning. Mm. But yeah, connecting with connecting with uh, forces in the universe that uh, that actually are in a state of total self acceptance at all times—that's entirely possible. And if the religious stories are are um, what help you get there, then then great. Who or what was influential to you in your path of? Uh, increasing self-acceptance. There's definitely been moments of meeting people. Uh, I don't think I'll get into names in this in this uh, podcast, but I've met I've, I've met rather. Many people at many times who were able to offer, who were able to accept me in a moment where I couldn't accept myself, and then also people who are in a very high degree of self-acceptance at all times. And I've told this funny I've told this funny story uh, publicly before, but I, in a meditation one day, I was I was trying to talk to different fig- figures in history to connect with their consciousness somewhere and ask them questions, and I uh, I connected with. In my mind, I thought I was connecting with uh, with uh, with Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whoever that was, and because I grew up in such a Christian family that uh, you know I thought this poor guy has got so many projections and stories and mythologies about him, and who was who was he really? So I thought I would just ask directly, and this answer came back, and, and the voice said. I'm just a guy who reached total self-acceptance. From that place, I could be whoever they needed me to be. And maybe I made that up, maybe not, but it was a really interesting and satisfying answer. And in that moment, it, it really caused me to see the power of total self-acceptance, which is so, so rare. And there's that connection between self-acceptance and freedom in what you in in that statement yeah um it's like when your your ego isn't clinging to some idea of who it should be um maybe you have more adaptability or more ability to yeah like that yeah i mean the ego is inversely proportional to to self-acceptance and you the major function of our ego is to do all the things right and play the game well that allows us to get a passable level of acceptance from others or even just not experience brutal judgment by others. But it's it's definitely not operating from a place of safety and self-acceptance. It's operating from a worldview of the brutal, relentless judgments of others and sort of walking a tightrope so i feel like we we sort of skimmed over make soil and i know it's been a project that's been close to your heart for um for some time now um i i want to have some opportunity to talk about that and what's going on with it Mm -hmm. well make soil is a great example of a project that has a, an impact on the environment and human consciousness at the same time. And it's based on an experience I had 10 years ago where I, I built a compost bin in my apartment complex and then wanted to make soil from, for a garden. I wanted to learn how to grow food and I was 
first learning where you get the nutrients from and oh you get it from soil and where does soil come from does it come from the hardware store it's like oh the best soil comes from your own food waste so I wanted to try that out so I built this this compost bin and I didn't have enough food to fill it up myself food scraps I was just a single guy and didn't have uh, enough food waste so I went rather innocently door to door to my neighbors and asked them if they would start bringing their food waste to to this compost bin and that's this is in a place that had no municipal pickup like San Francisco does most cities don't almost all the world's food waste ends up in landfills today so very few places uh, have uh, a little green bin to, to put it in and so in this town almost nobody knew about soil or composting or anything like that but they said sure I'll help you out I'll bring my food waste to your your bin over there and I walk them over to the bin and within a few weeks there were over a dozen people bringing their food scraps there on a daily or every other day basis and much to my surprise all of these people began to have what I would call environmental awakenings they would they were beginning to see with new eyes that the world was a living system without any cajoling without any documentaries or charts and graphs and scary statistics about needing to be more sustainable or anything like that they were just witnessing this process of their food waste turning into this jet black soil that week after week they come out and find that the food waste was disappearing they couldn't find the contents that they'd been bringing and that in its place this jet black soil was building up and when you touch that soil it was teeming with life living soil full of microbes that communicate to the skin to your living skin there's a conversation that goes on there and it just left people with the sense that the earth was a living a living being and a living system and that they themselves as humans could harmonize their human life with that living system and if you think about it there's there's zero there's zero opportunities and experiences in the normal modern human life where a human gets to witness themselves coming into harmony with a living planet it's it's usually consumptive and destructive and maybe we do some things like recycling or driving an electric car and those are nice but they're still just damage control they're still just minimizing or trying to mitigate slightly the amount of wear and tear on the planet that each of us is causing but then here you have this experience of watching the food waste that fed you it composes your body watching that food waste turn back into this life-giving soil from which the healthiest food can then grow again I realized it was the only complete feedback loop and the only example of a regenerative activity that I and my neighbors had ever participated in in our whole lives and so 10 years later after ending my entrepreneurial journey with a, a previous company that I founded I had some time and I had some money and I was thinking what's the biggest impact I could I could have on the environment and on human consciousness and and despite all the hundreds of esoteric modalities that I've studied and dozens of phenomenal consciousness raising technologies that I've explored in all my travels I, I couldn't get it out of my head that the most transformative thing I'd ever witnessed was this was due to this simple act of making soil together with my neighbors and friends and so make soil is a platform that aims to scale that experience to spread that simple experience millions of times over until that consciousness uh, shift pervades through that experience when i think about uh, environmental degrade degradation um, seems really tragic um, I have a special soft spot in my heart for the, the coral reefs which are, are dying I've seen some of the dead ones and some of the living ones and, um, and and it doesn't seem like people really know how to stop it and these are very old and complex and delicate ecosystems that are dying um, and it feels like a tragedy and but it also feels like such a big problem that I'm sort of scared away from mm -hmm. from wanting to to engage with it. I think 
I will have my heart less broken if I don't go near it. And that's the coping mechanism economy back to what we were talking about earlier. There's so many heartbreaking things to approach, whether it's the state of the coral reefs or our own shame, that it's just much easier to play on the internet or watch videos or play a video game or drink a beer or something. But the good news is with, with, with make soil, the other, the other experience that people were having was that they didn't feel hopeless and powerless anymore by watching, by watching their food waste turn into soil. They eventually realized that they were sequestering carbon. They were, you know, keeping, first of all, keeping that food waste from rotting and turning into methane which is an even worse greenhouse gas than CO2, but also preventing CO2 from entering the atmosphere, which is what is causing the acidification of the oceans, that carbonic acid. So the amount of relief that people feel when they can take an actual physical step and watch the planet heal itself, which making soil together allows, hugely cathartic, starts to unwind and offer relief against a lot of the fear and shame that we've stored up with all these stories and documentaries about how damaging humans are to the planet. We just, I believe we're walking without, by offering all that scary information without actual, actionable, effective, meaningful steps that we can take on a daily basis. We've, we've almost just traumatized the whole human species into you're a terrible animal doing terrible things to the planet. It's a, train wreck that's gone off the rails and there's nothing we can do about it. That's sort of subconsciously, if not consciously, what a lot of us are walking around with. The fun thing that we're going to shift with make soil is to teach people that we, we really do have a hope if we can decentralize the carbon capture problem. So the CO2 is being, it's a, it's a decentralized problem, the CO2 generation. We're all doing it. And so it makes sense that the solution would be decentralized as well. So what people don't see right now is that the banana peel, the coffee grounds, the tea bags, the, the acorns in their front yard from the oak tree, the leaves that are falling in the fall time, the paper towels, all of these things, the paper plates, all of these things are carbon that, that plants have already captured from the air. And if we as a human species mobilized to turn all of those aforementioned items and countless others into soil, locking those, those, that carbon into the ground, we could all work together to sequester carbon. Nature is always sequestering carbon. Every plant form is sequestering carbon. And the human species is the one animal who can do this alchemical thing of balancing carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, uh, airflow, and moisture by just that and just the thermal mass of, of all those ingredients together. We're the only animal intelligent enough to wrangle all those forces until we hit this sweet spot where the microbes take over and turn just about any organic matter back into living soil. So with that, if, if what I just said goes from being a niche topic that almost nobody knows into the great human pastime, making soil together, capturing carbon in all of its varied forms, uh, you know, I was in an apple orchard the other day, you know, it was actually next to a high school and there was just, there were thousands of apples rotting on the ground. In the future, humans will look at that and say, wow, look at all that carbon that, that, the, that, that those trees have already pulled out of the air. Let's lock that into the soil. Let's turn that into nourishing soil. We won't see these scenes of food rotting and things lying on the ground and rotting because humans will realize that's the carbon. That's the mythical carbon we're trying to pull out of the air. It's already been pulled out of the air by all the plants around us. We just have to steward it and shepherd it into the ground. And we're going to get hundreds of millions of people participating in that act. And it will make an actual difference and possibly reverse the whole situation. Well, I, I like the, I, I like the, the company a lot. I like the idea a lot. Um, 
I think people need often often people need an environmental awakening, especially if they live in cities or suburbia. Um, the The idea of nature is something abstract and distant, uh, not something living, not something they have an emotional connection to. Um, and I talk from my own experience. I, I used to. Um, I think there was something where the people who talked about the environment a lot were also anti-capitalist, and I didn't like them, and I felt threatened by them and their whole belief system. So I assumed like environmentalism was also uh, stupid or bullshit or overwrought, and it was really um, just. It took many years uh, until I had direct connection with nature until I had uh, psychedelic experiences in nature um, that it uh, opened my heart more to to the natural world and, and wanting to protect it. And um, so, so I think people really need some sort of direct connection, some sort of introduction to that relationship um, to start out. Yeah, it was, it was uh, a challenge for me over the past uh, 15 years or so where uh, I would spend time in the business and business world as an entrepreneur and find that not many of them knew anything about nature or the environment. And, and then I succeeded in, in the business world as an entrepreneur and, 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 and with a company that actually made the world better by, by fixing public transport systems all over the, the world. And then I'd go to the kind of more environmentally minded places and then I'd be treated like, uh, like the problem or like the enemy because I'd succeeded in capitalism, even though all I do with that money really is plow it into projects that heal the planet in some way, right? So I know the, I know the pain of those projections and that's unfortunately, that's not coming from love, that's coming from a misperception uh, that those people have. Um, and then they end up disempowering themselves because then they, they don't have the resources to affect any of the change and then they go and have to essentially panhandle for grants and this and that and um, and it's it's all pretty unnecessary but there's very few people if you draw a Venn diagram who understand technology and you draw another circle in the Venn diagram who are comfortable with money earning money and making money and draw another circle in the Venn diagram people who understand nature deeply and have what I call ecosystem consciousness they can actually see the pattern of living systems around them. Any human being can absolutely inhabit the sweet spot in the middle of all, all of those circles, but very few do. And that's back to the healing conversation. We're talking about healing our identity. We get a hold of all these ideas of what we are and what we aren't. We draw these lines and we put other people on one side of the line and we're clearly on this side of the line. And, and it all comes down to some unhealed, need to belong to something and to project our pain and lack of self-acceptance onto somebody else. And, and so healing our, our identities, um, is also part of the process. Yeah. And that's why making soil together. What's so funny is I think it can be like this universal act, regardless of political affiliation or economic ideology, uh, it's just, it's, it's the same act of making soil can be an act of peace by one person, an act of environmentalism by another person, an act of self-sufficiency by another person, an act of resourcefulness by another person, a spiritual act for another person. Some people, when they're bringing that food waste to the, to the, the soil site, to the bin, they begin to have an experience of carrying an offering to the altar the 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 bin and the soil and the food scraps there that gave life to them and powered their body it becomes a, like a religious procession it becomes more meaningful than than uh, than church to them other people just feel the they may feel that later on but other people they feel the the safety and security of knowing that they know how to produce soil the original the the, the foundational thing that gives that can give them life Seeds are actually quite cheap and easy to come by, but nourishing soil to put them in is actually a lot more rare. So it's just, it's, it's almost like this, um, 
I don't know, some kind of crystal ball or something that people see. People see what they need to see in the act of making soil. And all I know at this point is if hundreds of millions of people began doing this together, then we would somehow usher in, you know, peace on earth. Yeah. I am, um, I feel some desire to uh, bridge uh, cultural bubbles um, as I've challenged my own identity. I found more value out in, in I found values that were held by other groups that I didn't identify with that, that were good. Um, and like I come from a more libertarian Republican kind of background where it seems like the people that are more in touch with the earth come from more progressive blue state kind of places. And, and it's, it's a little embarrassing. I want to, I do want to say like, um, like this can be in touch with your values. Uh, uh, there's, there's an idea in like, if, if, if you're, a, if a Christian believes in, in the Christian God, um, it should be embarrassing to him that he's making the earth, the creation worse and not tending to it as intended. Um, so that's just my own sort of personal journey is like, trying to bridge some of these gaps and route some of these ideas because I know how to speak multiple languages. Mm -hmm. um, it's an important role in society today to be the an, in, an integrate, integrative function in society. Yeah. What's the biggest obstacle you've faced in this project? The, the biggest obstacle laughably was for, for me to get my own ego out of the way to say yes to the project because I really thought I had an idea of what the next thing was that I would do and I thought it would be exciting in a different way. I thought it, the whole soil making thing, sure I had taken months of my life to learn how to make soil in actual, actual years and I'm, I'm enamored with it. But I, you know, in a world of Tesla and SpaceX and big ambitions and so on, I thought, wow, what is my next contribution going to be? And I can't even remember what other, what I wanted my next project to look like, but I know that as the, as the act of making soil kept coming to me over and over again, I pushed it away for many months and said, no, that's such a homely, simple idea. I want to do something big. <laughs> and, and I had to really stop and say, wait a minute, what is, I kind of turned around and said, what does, what is life asking me to do? And I had a little conversation with, either my own higher self or or some other force out there and I said okay what why do you want me to what do you what do you need me to do this soil making thing for and this little voice said to me uh, it said well you're, you're you're one of the only people out there who knows how to scale a technology platform and who also cares this much about soil. So there's people out there who are better tech entrepreneurs than me and there's people out there who know more about soil than me. But in, as far as people who have deep experience with both, it's pretty slim pickings apparently at this point in society. And so I seem to be the, the, the guy who it's falling to, to, um, to say, and also the economics, right? We believe that make soil and the, the role of the soil maker in society will be a revered role in society and that is worth paying for. That in the future we're going to ask soil supporters, which is what we call the neighbors who are bringing their food waste to the soil maker, to support the soil maker with 10 or 20 or $30 a month for the service they're providing. And so that, that ushers in the first economic regenerative jobs. That's The soil maker will be one of the, one of the first regenerative jobs that comes online for the human species. And, and so to model that regenerative job and that regenerative economy, we're so far off from having a regenerative economy. We start, we need those early examples of what regenerative jobs look like. So, so somebody who's comfortable with scaling a tech company, somebody who loves soil and has ecosystem consciousness and somebody who also can see the importance of having an economic component where people begin to have livelihoods that are, that are resulting from a regenerative job. Just the Venn diagram, just it just it just began increasingly to look like this was this was this was the job for me. Whatever whatever else I had wanted to get involved in, 
something that seemed sexier and more exciting, eventually I had to day by day come to come to acceptance uh, that this was going to be my my next project and to really come into full alignment with it, shall we say. I think any of us, when we come into full alignment with anything, uh, the effects are almost instantaneous, but we're, we're so rarely in full alignment with anything. We're so conflicted about all of our actions. So mm. I can't remember the last time I was in full alignment about something. <laughs> it's rare, my friend. Yeah. I don't know that I've ever been. Right. And I have, yeah. I have, but... Uh, Glorious yeah. moments, right? Yeah, never, never, uh, <laughs> never a job, unfortunately. Yeah. So the call just got so loud that eventually you you had to answer the damn phone. It was ringing, yes, ringing the, too loud. The call got very loud, and it got loud in painful ways as well. So I was, um, I was staying with some folks who are very, um, they identify as very conscious people, and in many ways they are, and they do yoga a lot and they meditate a lot and they're very educated and you know have a lot of degrees and such from prestigious places and I came into the kitchen one day and and saw one of them jamming their food scraps eggshells and such down the garbage disposal and it was shocking to me because there was a, a compost bin five feet away from that garbage disposal and I just didn't I was just quite didn't quite understand what was going on and I asked the person you know what are you doing like the compost is right there and and they said it doesn't really matter and and I said I didn't even know where to begin you know because this was a person who also cared about health and nutrition at least putting it in their own bodies but who didn't realize that by jamming the food waste down the garbage disposal that food waste was never making its way back to the fields to nourish the fields that the food grows in to nourish their own bodies. So they didn't even understand the basics of the food system, let alone the broader implications of carbon and climate and ecosystems. And I just, in that moment, I, my heart broke and I collapsed in despair because I thought, what hope do we have if, if people who are, so educated and affluent and have time and have resources and can learn anything at any time don't know the simplest thing about the planet right now what hope do we have and i just i fell apart in that moment and some days later i was having this kind of conversation with to me it feels like a conversation with my own soul uh, but i'm perfectly happy if anybody out there listening wants to call it my subconscious or who knows what that's fine and i just was sort of despairing and and it's as if the voice came back and said we're not showing you these things to be cruel to you we're we're showing these to you so that you will accept the 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 mission we've laid before you and in that moment i understood that i had this misperception that if we all just meditated and did yoga, we would automatically start to take better care of the planet. And now I was seeing that people who were meditating in their apartments, dissociated from nature, were never completing the feedback loop about what it means to be a living human animal in an ecosystem with finite resources that require the death of a living system to 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 keep our own life forces alive, that no amount of sitting on a pillow and meditating was going to clear that up for people, that something was missing. And that's when it came to me in all the full force that experience 10 years ago, where unbeknownst to all of us and without any cajoling, we had just watched the planet heal itself with our own participation while making soil and it had taken care of the rest. In that moment, I knew that that was what was being called of me to just to simply spread that experience the world over. Seems like some kind of spiritual growth like requires embodiment. Um, it requires to be connected to the fact that we are also animal and part of nature. You know, I've just discovered this uh, idea of karma yoga in Hinduism, where for many years as, a, as an active entrepreneur 
who felt that my life of business and busyness was opposed to my journey of consciousness, you know, that there's either checking emails and filling out paperwork or there's sitting with my eyes closed and my legs crossed. These were the two ways you could be and they couldn't get along with one another. And so that tension, I carried that for many, 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 many years. And in recent months with the Make Soil Project and others where the project itself seems so healing and I'm in full alignment with it, I've simultaneously come to learn about karma yoga, which is the path of enlightenment through action, which you don't hear a lot about these days. Mm. So there's the path of, um, of, of, uh, I might be mispronouncing it, but it's like jnana yoga or something like that, the path of knowledge. And that's the one we're most familiar with, where you're going to read some spiritual book and sit there with your legs crossed and meditate on the meaning of it. That's come to mean, that's come to represent the path, a very spiritual path to us. But there's these other paths that they identified, including bhakti, which is like devotion to a deity or to creation or to the universe, to the cosmos, to whatever, to whatever, they're all just facets of reality to the Hindus, to whatever facet of, of the one God you could perceive, just devote yourself to it and, and enter into this relationship of devotion with it. And so both of those resonate so strong, strongly with me now. So when I personify the planet as a living system uh, or the universe as a whole, as a living being, and I say, I will do this work in service to you as an offering to you, as a gift to you, as a sign of my gratitude to you. Or if I take the path of karma yoga and say, I will find my path to enlightenment in the world of action by carrying out activities with the highest vibration and tension that I can manage. Those ideas have really helped me unify the path of spirituality and action to where it's becoming a distant memory that they were ever opposed. And yet I lived most of my life that way. I remember one thing that you said a while ago about active love. Um, and I, I think that active love is a, a, also a path to mm, what we're calling higher consciousness, certainly just like feeling better about existence and about your own existence and your relationship to the rest of existence. Like, uh, the, I think, um, the more I love, the more I act through love, um, the more, uh, the better it feels to be alive. And hmm. the, the nice thing about that is that, um, I get really bored and I have a hard time like remembering to like sit on a cushion, um, or to focus my mind, uh, to take time out for contemplative work. Um, but like physical, like, um, active things to do, uh, feel just much more engaging to me. It's like a path that's easier for me. Uh, one thing that people, I, I think that's high on people's mind nowadays is we, we sort of have lost old systems of meaning where like what a good life meant was easily laid out. And now people have so many options that it's very hard to plot a course. Um, so do you have anything to say on like how to plot a course through your life or find a purpose or other language around this? Cause it seems like you have a quite a strong one. Yeah. It's, it's getting harder and harder for me to, to relate to, um, you know, there's, there's all I see when I open up my eyes around, around me is, is opportunities to make the world more beautiful, more efficient, more something. And, and so <laughs> certainly if people were doing things with themselves, let's say their job, you know, 40 hours a week, 
and 10 hours in traffic. So you take those 50 hours and if those were being applied in activities that a human being felt were making the world a better place or making somebody else's life better or helping them live authentically, there's no question that they would feel good, whatever that activity is. And so in a world this messed up environmentally, this world messed, a world this messed up socially, a world this messed up psychologically and spiritually, I see like 10 million opportunities for somebody to step in and, and carry out a work in the world. And so the work is waiting to be done. There's just all kinds of psychological barriers. Who am I to do that? I don't know anybody else doing that, right? They think some of the most important jobs today don't even have job titles. Like with Make Soil, we're creating the job of the soil maker. We're giving the title soil maker as an identity for people to step into. But there's got to be thousands of jobs like ecosystem manager that don't really exist today that need to exist right now. They needed to exist 10 years ago. So. There's these, there's these activities for us to step into that would feel so meaningful and important. And so in a world where most people, I think, are rather half-hearted or downright dejected about the way that 50 hours of their week is spent, you know, what can you, what can you expect? But it doesn't have to be that way. My best guess for how, how I'm sort of approaching the problem of figuring out what to do in life is uh, um, I think I imagine that if I get my my soul or my consciousness like straightened out first like it'll get easier um, maybe starting closer to closer in is like the way to approach that it can be except that one of the ways to straighten out your insides may be through karma yoga, through action, mm. through active love, right? So it's very paradoxical. Just when you think if you just went more interior, then you realize that if you just went exterior, then ultimately you find there's no difference between interior and exterior, right? So is the, is the thing to do to sit on your cushion and meditate or is the thing to do to make two cups of tea and walk your neighborhood till you find the first homeless person you see and then make it through an entire cup of tea with them while being with them? Could be that, right? Mm. So hence the importance of getting in touch with your own inner authority, your own soul, we might call it, because no one, you know, no famous person, no expert can tell you what's what specifically is right to do with your life. That's the big joke is that it's clear now that whatever job our parents thought we should have is completely irrelevant now or maybe doesn't even exist anymore. And that's part of the existential malaise now is like who's going to tell us what to do with ourselves? Who's going to give us the job that we need or whatever? And it's a time for en masse coming into relationship with our own inner guidance and higher self. And one very practical thing you'll find then is that every person, if they go looking for it, has inside of them one idea for how the world could be more beautiful. And like, like, Every one of us can find one of those. It might look very small. It might look very big. It could look like helping somebody, you know, clean up the park across the street. It could be like having that cup of tea with a homeless person. It could be creating a piece of software that doesn't exist. It could be um, planting a tree. It could be making soil. Right? It's just endless, but each person has, if they really were to stop wondering what everybody else, what everybody else's opinion is of what they should do with themselves, if they were just to stop and check in with themselves, they would have an idea for how the world could be more beautiful. Mm. And if each person acted on that vision and took some step toward that vision of how the world could be more beautiful, you know, billions of people doing that at once would make heaven on earth.
I feel like we are coming to the end of our time. And that was a really nice thing you just said. Could end there and cut out this part. Or um, is there anything that you'd like to leave people with before we go? No, I feel I feel pretty complete. I feel like that was a that was a great great audio journey. And I will say though that if if anybody is wondering, if anybody is out of touch with that act of beauty within themselves and can't find it right now because of the damage they've taken from society, from ourselves, from our family and friends, then you could do a lot worse than making soil out of the food that nourished you with your neighbors. It's a great place to start. Thanks, Josh. Thank you, Jacob. <laughs>